check this out, man. Okay, talk to me about the future of Public Enemy. Future of Public Enemy got a... Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and I'm so pleased today to be speaking with Lewis Sacker. Uh, welcome, Lewis. Thanks for being here. Oh, hi, T. It's great to be here. And thanks for picking the Dylan to kick us off. Um, brilliant start. Well, actually, my, my second book was called Johnny's in the Basement. Oh, really? Yeah. And from listening from, to the Stillen song. song? Oh, yeah. And, and was, and, was and that... And the Lookout Kid part and all that. Oh, that's great. And so was that was that also a young adult book? Or what, what would you... How would you categorize it? I would say it? that one's more of just a children's book. I mean, uh, oh, a, children, okay. a middle reader, like ages third through sixth grade, something like that. Oh, that's great. Okay. So, that, so that's considered a middle reader. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that, like how, um, because you're here, um, you're visiting Ann Arbor, you'll be reading at Nicola's, um, and I should say we're, tape, we're taping this program, it's uh, May 14th, 2010, um, and Lewis, you're here um, with your on tour for The Card Turner, your right. latest, um, uh, a novel about a king, a queen, and a joker. Right. I love that. I love that subtitle. <laughs> um, how did when did that when did that come to you? The, the, the subtitle. Yeah. Actually, at the very last second, it was a it was a stop the presses moment because my editor had written a different subtitle, which I thought was okay. What was that one? Was that it? was a novel with imperfect partners and infinite possibilities. Yeah, but that's a mouthful, isn't right. it? Yeah. And my my agent didn't like it, and we were going back and forth on it. And I said, "Well, I can't think of anything." And my <laughs> and my my editor said, "Well, it's you know, it's pretty much too late. We're we're going to go run the print the cover today." And then I got the idea for this subtitle and called her, and she literally said, "Hung up," and so that she could run down the hall and stop. <laughs> stop the presses to change the subtitle that's really exciting yeah. isn't it one of those moments and it's perfect i can't yeah. um especially since because because what age group then are you is the is the card turner aimed for like i mean anyone can read it i've been right. enjoying it but what um well you know when i write a book i really don't think in terms of what age it's for especially really now i just write a story i like now but i'm aware that that um, it's basically young people who who know my books, so I try to make it as accessible to young people as I can make it. Um, but it's really what I like, and so this one is being marketed as um, ages I think twelve to twelve and up. Uh, but I think people of all ages above twelve, you know, even much older, will like it. And and yes, and do you find that when you're like, when you're getting a like reader response or people com writing letters to you or emails, is that well actually, I'll ask that again in just a second. 
I'll kick this off with your short bio from the back of the card turner, Lewis. Um, Lewis Sacker is the author of the award-winning Small Steps and the number one New York Times bestseller, Holes, as well as Stanley Yelnet's survival guide to Camp Green Lake. He is an avid bridge player. His books for young readers include There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom, (laughs) The Boy Who Lost His Face, Dogs Don't Tell Jokes, and the Marvin Red Post series, among many other books. Um, As we just heard Johnny in the Basement being one, too. (laughs) And I'm also very well known for for the Wayside School books. But uh, they weren't mentioned there because that was a different publisher. Well, how did you get your start with writing, Lewis? If you don't mind as, as me asking such a pedestrian question as that. Like, when, when did you start? Were you always writing as a, as a young boy? Um, and Well, since high school, I was really, that's when I started reading people like J.D. Salinger and Kurt Vonnegut and thought that's, boy, you know, these people are my heroes. And always thought I would... Um, if I, you know, wrote, I would try to write, you know, adult novels. And then I was going to Berk- to college at Berkeley. And my last year, I just needed a class to fill my schedule and signed up to be a, a nearby, signed up to, to be a teacher's aide at a near, nearby elementary school. And just had a great time with the kids. I, it became my favorite thing to do every day was to leave the heavy world of the Berkeley campus and go be with these, you know, nine and 10 years olds. And so when I graduated... And what was it about that? Is it, was it something about the imagination or the energy level? I think it's the energy, the enthusiasm, you know, they're just so happy instead of a bunch of college students walking around with their heads down. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, just bright eyed, unjaded kids that actually, as you're speaking about it, that's how you look right now, too. Your eyes yeah. are like that. And I still feel that way when I go, and it's so wonderful when I go and autograph books and just see those wide-eyed, bright, you know, bright faces in line, you know, to get, they're so excited. Is that what happens on, because you're, you're on quite an extensive tour. Let's see, where's that, the list, like you're, you're at sort of at the beginning of it, at week right. one, it looks like, um, you're, you're heading to Ohio and Chicago after this, St. Louis, Seattle, um, uh, let's see, Portland, uh, Powell's and it hit there and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So is that, is, is that like what happens? Is your audience filled with these bright-eyed, uh, Young people, the, yeah, them and their parents and teachers and uh, and often it's which which I like the best are the are the ones who are like you know college age or who grew up reading my books and heard I was going to be in town and and still want to meet me and get my uh, you know get a book. Was was Holes some like such a phenomenal book? Because I I read that when I was working in a bookshop in Seattle because I wanted to read more than Harry Potter, like all like the series, so I knew what to talk to when mm-hmm. um, the, like younger readers came into the shop. Um, and I really enjoyed Holes. <laughs> um, was that oh, something yeah. that you find people coming up to oh, to yeah. speak with you about? Yeah, it's it's hard to find someone who who especially under you know, 20 or 25 who hasn't either read Holes or seen the movie. Brian, the engineer, has has read You're, it and seen it. And Michelle also is, is reading. Yeah, everybody's. Well, no, well Michelle's no. saying no, she hadn't. But oh, she, she has. Oh. But she's not under 25. <laughs> I couldn't see. Okay, I couldn't. The speaker was blocking my view. Okay. Um, well, um, so, but I, I want to go back to that moment. So you're at Berkeley. You're going to volu- volunteer, work at the 
the mm-hmm. elementary school. Right. I got college credit oh, for doing oh. it. Oh, okay. So it wasn't completely altruistic volunteering. It was uh, an easy class. <laughs> but then that's what changed your life then. I know. That's what's so amazing. And so did you start, were you working with the kids on writing at that time? Or um, uh, we have... Um, or what happened? Like what happened? Or did you just start no, when you were writing? You no, started writing just, for them as your audience. Yeah, no, I was just helping out in the classroom. I don't even remember what I was doing, but it wasn't it wasn't teaching them to write. And uh, and then I got hired to be the noontime supervisor, which meant I passed out the balls during recess and kept them from killing each other. And <laughs> and I just had a I just had a ball playing with them, and uh, they all called me Lewis the Yard Teacher. And. Uh, <laughs> So uh, my first book, Sideways Stories from Wayside School, all the kids in the book are named after those kids, and Lewis, the yard teacher, is a character in the book. Oh, that's great. And, when, and so when did you write, when did you draft that, was, that book? That was in 1976. Was that when you were still at Berkeley? It was right Lewis, after or? I graduated. Okay, so you, so these stories were, were populating your, your head, so you just... Um, but at that point, did you have sort of a, a writing schedule and you, you were writing on like kind of working on that Kurt Vonnegut esque mm-hmm. <laughs> adult novel? And then on the side, these other stories were coming to you or how did it happen? Uh, um, no, I wasn't working on the Kurt Vonnegut. I was just p- putting all Rest my energy. Rest in peace. <laughs> I was putting all my energies into, uh, into this, into that book. But actually, I just last year, well, I think it was, or maybe it was two years ago, I actually won the Kurt Vonnegut Award for, for Holes. Uh, congratulations. Was, uh, yeah, it really meant a lot. He was right after he passed away, unfortunately, but, uh, but his daughters presented me with the award. That's so that great. Was really, uh, that was really touching. And is the award, what, what exactly is it um, recognizing, and besides the, the, the greatness of Holes, but... Um, I, don't, I don't know. It was like a library in Indiana who that... that you know, chose the award. I'm not sure what their criteria was. Because it's interesting that because Kurt Vonnegut is is one of those bridge writers as well. Well, gosh, I'm using the word bridge. <laughs> we should get to that yeah. as well. But um, we're we're young. A lot of young readers right. launch into reading a, adult novels through Kurt Vonnegut. Often, I think or, so. Yeah, that's that's that's, and, that's how I was. And so yes, and okay. So so and how did well, you have this book of the wayside stories then what happened how did you find an agent how did you pitch this book because this because there's been an upswelling in in looking for for young like young readers books but i'm not sure at that time in, in the late 70s if what the situation was well it's always been difficult to get a book published um i made 10 photocopies of the manuscript Fortunately, I had a girlfriend who like worked for some company where she was able to, you awesome. know, you know, copy them for me because otherwise it was like, you know, beyond my budget. And um, I sent out the ten copies to ten different publishers without telling them that they were multiple submissions. And uh, so directly to the publisher, no, right. no agents, no nothing, just right. And did you pick out th- places like? I don't know, like Random House. Yeah, or, I picked that or, all. I had a book. Or Delacourt Press. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I chose Delacourt then or not. I I had a book called Writer's Market that I got out of the library and, okay. just, and just picked out 10 publishers and sent sent out 10 copies of the manuscript. And one of them agreed to publish it. And uh, But it was a small company out of Chicago that went out of business about two years later. 
So then I was sort of back to square one again. Oh, because then what? How do you keep it in print or well, distribution? Went out, it, or... it went out of print, um, which was for you know like five years. It was both encouraging and frustrating because I'd get these. I was amazed at how much fan mail it generated. But and they'd say, "Where can we get this book?" And I'd have to say, "You know, you can't get it." So it was it was real tough. And then, meanwhile, I I was able to get Johnny's in the Basement and Someday Angeline published with another publisher. And then I finally got the rights back to the Wayside School book, which was by far the most popular. And tried to get them to publish it, and they were thinking about it. And I started just forwarding all the fan mail I was getting to them. And they eventually agreed to publish it, and now it's sold over six million copies. Oh wow, wow! And well, um, and how did when you to find that second publisher? Did you use the same method where you had did, the I, new book and you made you <laughs> photocopied it and send it? Yeah, but this time it? at least I was able to say I was a, a published author. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's take a short break, and okay. we'll be we'll be back today on Living Writers. Lewis Sacker and his latest. The Card Turner, a novel about a king, a queen, and a joker. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Yes, remember, this is a children's book. <laughs> that was getting kind of racy there. Um, that was That's a local musician. Um, some, uh, Brian, can you help us out with the name of, of the local musician on that? Because uh, Lewis, when he was sitting in the studio waiting before we began taping, um, this uh, Andrew was playing this, Reverend Andrew, over um, the, you know, um, on WCBN here. Uh, great music always. Um, to, Brian, who is who was that? This uh, was... Chef Chris and the Rum Shakers. Uh, the track was called Boogie Through the Night. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so it's it's great music, but uh, we, we were also just thinking that the fishnet might not be going quite with our, uh, you know, <laughs> our target audience for the card turner. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they probably love it. But the characters are actually, they're high school age. Right. Um, and so uh, Alton being the hero <laughs> of the book and then his, his sister, Leslie, um, how old? How old is Leslie? Leslie is eleven. Okay, and Leslie's eleven. And 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 the book, of course, if you're just joining us, is the Card Turner, a novel about a king, a queen, and a joker, and um, and about bridge, the card game, basically. Yeah, well, it's about um, Alton, has a uh, who's seventeen, has this seventy-six uh, year old great uncle, 
who's very sick from a diabetes and he's gone blind and he's also very rich. And so his parents try to, uh, you know, worm their way into the into uh, Lester Trapp's good graces by uh, getting Alton to drive him around and take him to his bridge games. And then he's such an amazing bridge player that actually Alton will look at his cards, whisper what cards he has to him, and then and then Trapp can remember those cards and remember all the cards that people play and and still be an amazing player. Yeah, the the memory for bridge because yeah. you think that it's a game that um, well because it was a game that was in fashion a more in like the yeah, the like, early nineteen hundred right like in like, well, the nineteen twenties yeah or, yeah nineteen twenties till about the nineteen sixties or so and then it's kind of fallen out of fashion but it's. It's actually an amazing game. You know, people tend to think of it as kind of old and fuddy-duddy. Like if you play bridge, you play shuffleboard. Yeah, or you play or, bingo or something. Or bingo, right. And it's, it's, <laughs> but it's not the same at all. No, it's, it's, it's more like chess, but it's with a partner. And, it, and that's what I love about the game is it's, it's, it's you and your partner working together to solve the puzzle of each hand. And and there's like infinite possibilities, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hence the subtitle of the first right. book. Um, well, and and when did you start playing bridge? I Lewis? started about fifteen years ago. Why did you start? I, I um I had actually learned the game as a kid, but never played it. Just because I who you taught know, you as a kid? My parents, but I you know nobody my age ever played. And then I happened to meet uh, meet someone. Who was you know, who played duplicate bridge, and was always looking for partners. And I, and you know, I'd been reading the bridge columns all these years. And are you serious in the newspaper? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I love them. So I uh, even without playing, you would right. be reading. now. Why? Like, why were you reading well, that? What the, did it do every, for you? <laughs> every hand's a, is a puzzle, and and really, if you if for people who read the bridge columns, columns, it's how, it's solving the puzzle, and which which I enjoy. So anyhow, I agreed to play with her, and um, and I got hooked, and we've been, you know, I've been playing ever since. Well, because it's almost like a, an obsession, right? right? Oh yeah, just about everybody who plays is 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 hooked on it. You know, they it's 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 not you meet very few people who just kind of play duplicate bridge casually. Huh. And what are the age groups of the people that you're playing with? Are there like what was the inspiration of finding this this character who's in high school? And yeah, we... well, most of the people who play are, are elderly or older than me. Um, and so part of it was me just kind of worrying that this 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 whole culture is going to die out soon. And it's it's an amazing culture. So that was part of the inspiration of why I wanted to write it. Um, so the book is brings Alton, a 17 year old who's forced to take his uncle to these bridge games and turn the cards for him. And over the course of time, he becomes fascinated with the game and also uh, fascinated with his uncle and also fascinated with this uh, other 17-year-old girl named Tony. Who was also his uncle's protege. Right. Right? And former card turner until she made the mistake of asking him, are you sure, on one of the hand, <laughs> one of the cards. Well, could we hear part of it? That oh, sure. So this is... Um, This is a part where Alton is uh, was a was just kind of getting 
to know Tony, the, the girl, and was about to go out with her when it turned out that that was a weekend that he had to take uh, his uncle to a bridge tournament. And so instead, she ended up going to a party with uh, Alton's best friend. That yeah, that Cliff, yeah, right? Because yeah. he figures in early with Kate, yeah, he'd Alton's already, first love. Yeah, he'd already stolen one girl from Jeez. from Alton. So um, the intrigue of the card turner here. <laughs> so the whole time he's at the he's at the bridge um, tournament. He's worrying about Tony and 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 Cliff. Although at least he thinks Cliff is with his old girlfriend. So maybe so. But so I'm going to read a little bit here. Um, cause it's all, it's all actually going to be leading up to something of, uh, when, when Alton's driving Trap and his partner Gloria back from the bridge tournament. They won. Gloria whooped with delight when I reported the final results. They each got 15.5 master points. Trap pretended he didn't care, but don't you believe it? I had never seen him happier. He even sang a song on the drive home. We had been dis discussing music. I had never heard of any of the songs he and Gloria mentioned, and they'd never heard of the stuff I listened to. I played three songs for them, and tra Trap actually liked two or three. <clears throat> you never heard of Bye Bye Blackbird, he asked me. Nope, I said. It's a classic, said Gloria. Sorry, I said. Of course, neither of them had ever owned anything like an iPod, so they sang it for me. Gloria's voice was surprisingly sweet and melodic. Normally, when she just talked, it was gritty and full of cracks. Pack up all your cares and woe. Here I go, singing low. Bye-bye, Blackbird. Trapp sang the last verse. Listening to him, you just got a hint of the melody and had to imagine the rest. Make the bed and light the light. I'll be home late tonight. Blackbird, bye-bye. Now, I'm going to skip a little bit to the next day when, when Alton is talking to Cliff about the party. So, I dialed his number. Hey, Alton, he answered. So, how was Gilliam's party? Oh, kind of a dud. So, did you go with Katie, I asked. No, I think things are kind of ratcheting down between Katie and me. Your bridge friend was there. What's her name? Tony? As if he didn't know her name. There's nothing going on between you two, right? He asked. No, I admitted. So since you're not interested in her, she's free? Did you notice that I never said I wasn't interested in her? Still, who was I to say she wasn't free? Did you and Tony hook up? I asked. Oh, you know how it is. Everyone dancing. So you danced with her? Nah, she didn't want to dance. We just talked, maybe kissed a little. Cliff gave a sh short laugh, then said, She's crazy. How do you mean? I asked. Oh, you know, just the way she... Okay, here's something. Gilliam's parents own a karaoke machine, only their taste in music is pretty lame. Were his parents there? I asked. No, but it was their karaoke machine. So we're all trying to find some song somebody might have heard of. Then suddenly Tony just gets up, turns on the machine, and just starts singing this old-time song. It was like she stepped out of a time machine. What was the song, I asked. I don't know. Nobody had ever heard of it before. Something about a bird. That's not the point. 
Bye-bye, Blackbird, I asked. There was a long hesitation on the other end. How did you know? I don't know how I knew. I was still trying to figure out how two people could maybe kiss. Thank you. <laughs> that was great. That was great. Um, how do you... So when you're when you were writing the card turner um how do you inhabit the the mind like when in your imagination like in the voice of this high school student and 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 are you and to get the dialogue um like how are like the language like there's like lame uh and hookup and you know yeah there's very actually very little of that just enough to give you the hint that it's that it's um, that I'm getting the dialogue, but I actually don't don't do very much at all. I mean, lame's been around f- forever. <laughs> yeah. um, hookup is new, but uh, you know, probably not that new. Probably ten years old or something. But um, I don't try to to capture the current lingo because it it'll just date the book, and besides, I wouldn't probably get it right. So I just try to capture the the feelings of the characters. Um, Getting back to the first part of your question, I, you know, my, I remember when I was 17, my dad, who was 50, said, you know, that when he looked in the mirror, he was surprised by his reflection because he still felt like he was 17. And, and I know what he means because now, you know, the time I didn't, the time I thought, yeah, you're right, dad. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but, um, but I feel still very connected to the person I was when I was 17. So you have clear memories of that time that you're tapping when you're right. going into the to embody this character Alton. Yeah, so Alton is very much me. So when um <laughs> and your love for bridge comes through like how you you can you can um translate it in through him so that it comes out in this right. this well, novel. And weren't you warned not to to try to write a book about bridge for for this because if you were thinking about it you know oh. it sounds like you wanted to save bridge like so that younger people are introduced to it. But right. if you wanted to write a book about it right. and sell it like maybe you would would have looked yeah. at another mar- audience market or yeah right i mean every yeah other authors are writing about vampires and (laughs) (laughs) and that kind of thing and here i am writing about bridge um (laughs) another brooding sort of but it's actually it's actually pretty it's hard to believe but the the reviews i've been reading because i I was really not sure but all the reviews i've been reading is is that they, they they people get into the bridge and actually find it exciting which uh, I'm glad to hear. Um, and who and the reviews that you're mentioning is that like um, like the ones that you like? Is it are young people part of that, or is it more like the ones that we look for starred review in Kirkus? Yeah, or, yeah, know, it's, it's star, yeah. Okay. It's gotten like three starred reviews. Oh, great. Okay. Um, there was a real nice review in the LA Times that that sounded like it. The person who wrote it was somewhat younger, but it's not. Yeah, you know, not not, not thirteen age. years old. So and and this is like and you're thinking thirteen years old for for this book, right? Thirteen readership. and up. Thirteen and up. Okay. And I, and I stress the up. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think the story with the with the uh, the relationships between him and his friend and the betrayal of his friend and the relationship between he and Trap, who's his uncle, who he starts to realize there's more than just, you know, a dying old man, that he's actually this intriguing person. And and then especially his relationship with Tony, who supposedly is crazy, um, all, I think, 
will be in, you know keep the interest of the young of of young and older people and um and then the bridge you actually is written in such a way that if if it is does make you just zone out you can you can skip through it and just read the summaries yeah let's well, let's take a short break lewis and then we'll we'll come back and we'll talk about how you constructed the book if okay. you don't mind and um now we've got a special song for the the break here mm. um so you're listening to living writers today lewis sacker i'm t hetzel uh we'll be right back Listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM and Arbor, I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Lewis Sacker has here his novel, The Card Turner, and that was Peggy Lee. Um, what a beautiful version of that. Thank you, Brian Delaney, engineer extraordinaire, for finding that. Um, Lewis, that was beautiful, wasn't yeah. it? You were, that's what you said at the, uh, right. uh, when, when we were listening. <laughs> I don't know that I'd ever heard that version. Maybe that's how the version that Tony was singing from, yeah. you know, can you imagine that at a high school party? Right. Someone yeah. breaking that one out. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Beyonce will cover it, yeah. you know, or she already has. Um, that's a song from 1926. Yeah. So, and it's... Uh, we were also saying during the break that it's like this, like no one will understand me, you know, or doesn't understand me. It's so. So what a 17 year old feels. Yeah. And, and, and it's, I, I, do you still feel that way sometimes too, Lewis? Oh, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just so new at that point that I think you don't know what yeah. to do with it. Right. right. <laughs> um, so, so, so your, so it was your wife and your agent that said, you know, don't write this book about bridge. Yeah. Right. Was that true? I think I saw that in the, the, the foreword that you wrote to right. the book. Um, You're almost trying to explain why, <laughs> like give your reasons for yeah. why you wrote yeah. the card. Well, turner. it's kind of like saying, look, I know you think 
bridge is this dull, boring game, and you're not going to want to read about a bridge, but it's actually something here that, that's going to really turn you on. A note from the author, yeah. right? The reason why. Trust yeah. me, right? That's yeah. what you're basically saying. That's what I'm basically saying, saying in, a, in a much more clever way. So how did you decide, because the construction of the book is, it, you know, it has all the chapters, um, but there's also different, um, like you can learn bridge. I was starting to begin like to learn the game as I was reading the book. Um, and you, you place little whale um, icons. Uh, right. During, why don't you tell, can uh, yeah. you tell us a little bit how you, like, was that in there from the beginning or when did you decide to, to do uh, this method? Um, well, basically, my editor, who never has played bridge, just would say, ooh, this is, you know, I, I just get lost in this bridge. And so I was constantly revising it. Trying and is to make... this a longtime editor, may I ask, um, at the moment? Maybe about two or three books, yes. So you have some sort of level of trust right. of a working relationship. Well, plus, and, and as a bridge player, it was real important to me to have an editor who did not play bridge, so I knew what would be understandable. And... And I, and I would say to her, well, if they don't like, you know, they can just kind of skim through the bridge parts. And she said, well, you kind of, you know, young people don't, you know, they feel guilty doing that. They feel like <laughs> they have to read everything. You know, you need to somehow give them permission to do that, which I thought was crazy at first. But then I came up with this idea. And I'll, I'll just read this portion. So there's a little picture of a whale. Do you see that picture of a whale? It's going to be our secret code. Okay, maybe it's not so secret. This past year, I had to read Moby Dick in my language arts English class. Seemed like a pretty good adventure story about a monster killer whale, but just when I started to get into it, the author, Herman Melville, stopped the story and went on page after page describing every tiny detail of a whaling ship. I zoned out. I never finished the book and had to bluff my way through the test. The reason I'm telling you this is because I'm about to attempt to explain the basics of bridge. I'm not going to try to teach you how to play bridge. There's no reason way I could do that. I realize that reading about a bridge game isn't exactly thrilling. No one's going to make a movie out of it. Bridge is like chess. A great chess player moves his pawn up one square, and for the 0.0001% of the population who understood what just happened, it was the football equivalent of intercepting a pass and running it back for a touchdown. But for the rest of us, it was just a pawn going from a black square to a white one. Or getting back to bridge, it was trap playing the six of diamonds instead of the two of clubs. Well, there's nothing I can do about that. I'm sorry my 76-year-old blind diabetic uncle didn't play linebacker for the Chicago Bears. So here's the deal. Whenever you see the picture of the whale, it means I'm about to explain some detail about bridge. If that makes you zone out, then just skip ahead to the summary box and I'll give you the short version. So that's great. So, so you could really, I, and, I didn't take you up on your offer. I tried to read, I wanted to read those well, parts. Well, that's how most people I've talked to are, but what it does is it takes the pressure off. It says, okay, I'm going to try this part, but if I don't get it, it's okay because I could have just skipped it. And so now it becomes a challenge to read those parts um, without the 
pressure of, you know, you have to read it. And feeling like you might lose some of the narrative thread if you, you know, like part of the story that you need to keep going, right? Right. Because that's not in those parts. It is about the cards themselves and the suits and the... Well, it helps explain some of the parts of the narrative, you know, if you can follow the bridge, but it, um, you don't have to. Well, well, I, yeah, like I said, I think that's a wonderful idea to do. <laughs> and it's hilarious that it was the whale um, because it's such a great analogy with mm-hmm. Moby Dick because it's true. Like you're reading along and then suddenly it's, it's such intricate details of the, right. of the industry or of the whale oil or, um, and it's funny because um, Nathaniel Philbrick was just on the program and he, he, Herman Melville was one of, you know, his, you know, and Moby Dick was like a big influence on his mm. life too. So it's funny that Moby Dick it yeah. just won't well, go ne- away. Well, I never made my way. Th- I never could get past all those parts, so I never finished it. I know. I actually got waylaid too after <laughs> trying to read it after I graduated from college. Yeah, that was and when I tried to read it too. Maybe, maybe we should. Well, let's make a deal, Lewis. Are you up for it? Do you want to try to read it again, or are you? Yeah, okay. yeah. I'll give it a try. I'll, I'll let me, yeah, we'll have to. Let me know how you do. Okay. Um, but back to the book. Um, so, so at this point, you'd you'd written. So you you drafted the story. How could you talk a little bit about how you you came up with the idea of like? Did you have like a sketch of what was going to happen with Alton and how his relationship would be unfolding with his uncle Trap, or or did it? Is it something that as you were writing it, it just as I was writing it, it, it happened. I mean, that's sort of the, uh, what I like about writing is that it, it's a discovery process. And I'd never know what, where those characters are going to lead me until they lead me there. So I, uh, I never start out with, um, with any kind of outline or anything. I began just with the idea of a 17-year-old being his blind uncle's card turner and didn't really know where it was going to take me. And, and, and how did that idea come to you, um, Lewis? What was that? How did you come up with Alton? Was he, so he was the character that came to you first? Uh, no, the blind, the blind. Uh, well, it was, it was how do I introduce Bridge to kids? And I couldn't see doing it as a bunch of kids sitting around playing Bridge because that just didn't seem. That's pretty forced. Right. Yeah. But I liked the idea of, uh, of the, you know, of this, this elderly great uncle who plays, who's, a, who's actually a remarkable player who can play blind. And the idea of the, the parents pushing Alton to do this so they could, you know, cash in on his will, which is, sort of gives this kind of almost uh, comic element to it's... it. And, and it allows Alton to play off that, Alton to kind of be making fun of his parents as he's as he's also going around with his uncle and then he he learns to appreciate his uncle and also becomes uh intrigued by the game and and it seems to me that the the uncle is the adult character that gets fully developed in this whereas the parents um because of their roles in this they stay um as like almost like the like what a 17 year old might perceived like the parent to be like someone who's right because the mother seems especially it's almost reprehensible how she's like say he's your favorite uncle even even though for her it started like it's nice it's not like you're unkind to this character of the mother you say that it actually for her um he was her favorite uncle when she was 
when when she was young, um, but now she's trying to force it onto to Alton because right. of the money element. Because his father loses a job, right. his job. Um, right, and it's um, you know, I mean, everyone sees their parents as uh, you know worse than they are, including me. <laughs> And I'm sure my daughter does. Um, and so all Well, because parents, they're supposed to be perfect, too. So they're always right. going to be. So whatever they do embarrasses you. Or even though, yes. even though, you know, if your friend's parents did the same thing, you you might not, you know, you might think, oh, they're kind of cool. But it's horrifying. Yeah, it's horrifying when your own parents do and say those things. So his parents are a little bit exaggerated, but he does give it a, a nice moment at one point when he when he realizes that maybe his mother really did love his uncle, her uncle and just it was the uncle who wouldn't let her love him. You know, he never, he never answered her phone calls. He never, you know, came over and accepted one of her dinner invitations. And so instead she was forced to concentrate on his money because that's all she could concentrate on. So, so she, she's humanized a little bit there, but for the most part, she's, she's pretty bad. Was that a conscious dis- well well I wonder if it was a conscious decision with the with the father losing his job to be cuz in a you know if you're writing of this moment the economy is bad and lots of people are having right. the same problem in families um was that a conscious decision or was that, it No that was a conscious decision to to just humanize it all and make it bring it you know just make it more um and just round out the whole the story, so it's not all about Alton taking taking his great grandfather or his great uncle to bridge, but it's he's a you know he's living in this circumstance with his father out of his job and worrying about money and and so it you know again helps explain why his parents are pushing so hard for Alton to get in good with his with his uh, so-called favorite uncle. His favorite uncle, yeah. Um, yeah, I love how right from the beginning, because his name is uncle, like his name is Lester, right. isn't it? And so then the mother names her daughter Leslie right. <laughs> and stressing the less part of yeah. the name, right? But, um, but it, yeah, it just seems so important. Like it's those little touches, I think, where it's you're showing then early on he becomes trap, like the name. So his relationship, it, it, it shows that symbolically it's it's different for Trap and Alton than it is for the rest of the family because he's right. not Lester to him. He's... Right, yeah. Everybody at the bridge club calls him Trap and that's what Alton starts calling him. And yeah, it's, it becomes a real person instead of this this uh, mythical Uncle Lester. Who lives on a hill. Right. And he can't see the view anymore. Yeah. Right. Well, well, so it seems like you have a lot of fun when you're writing these these parts, um, these pieces to the the story puzzle. Yeah, yeah it's a story. The, the story is a puzzle. It sneaks up on you gradually, and as one, as one reviewer put it, after when you got she got to about page two hundred and fifty, and it was like Dorothy waking up and realizing she's not in Kansas anymore. Um, there's a there's the story just slowly creeps up on you and changes, and suddenly it's it's a completely different story. And so, and and what does that is that something that when it happens when as you're writing that you sense Lewis or is it something that you're shaping during the revision part or what it's that's I guess shaping during the revision part's the best way to put it I 
when I, like I said earlier, when I start a book, I don't know where it's going. So I, it, it goes off in lots of different directions. And then when I do the second draft, I have, now I have a much better idea where it's going and start shaping it and, and aiming it and, and adding things here and cutting things there and, and giving it more life. And, and I do like six drafts of each book. So, so by the time, you know, you get to read it, it sounds like I knew where I was doing all along, but it was actually a, a discovery process. And the, and the, what I think is what I think I hear you're saying, and what I like is that the discovery process is present through every every draft of the revision as well. It is, yeah. And like as, as I as I tell kids when I, you know when they ask me, you know, I explain the writing process, and they just think it's boring to rewrite. And I, and I say, well, you know, if it's boring for you to rewrite, it's going to be boring for anyone else to read. So I have to keep it interesting to me through all those revisions. And how do you do that? By coming up with new things and finding new layers to put into it and, and you know, making it all come together. And you feel like when you're, because you were saying you're cutting things away and you're aiming it during mm -hmm. parts of the, like, is it the part, like, how do you know what's true? Like, how do you know what feels write for your characters or at that point do you feel like you have such a sense of each of them i yeah after a while the characters become so real to me that that they seem to take over do you bring them to the dinner table uh with you because i because i see in your your your, your profile here uh like that you live in austin texas mm -hmm. with your wife a daughter and a dog watson right <laughs> uh, no i don't I wouldn't say i bring them to the you know the dinner table with me but they they just seem very real, and and I and I know if I'm if I'm writing about them and I put them in a certain situation, I know what's how they would or would react and how they wouldn't. I mean, what what rings true and what doesn't. That sounds good to me. We're going to take a short break. Okay. Uh, you're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Louis Sacker is here. His book, The Card Turner, a novel about a king, a queen, and a joker. You've got WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be back. When I get older, losing my head many years from now, will you still be sending me a Valentine? Best day greetings, bottle of wine. If I'd been out till quarter to three.
Hi, you've got Living Writers, and if you're just joining us, Louis Sacker is here. Um, Louis, thanks so much for being on the program today. Oh, this has been great. <laughs> well, it's good to have you here. Um, and, and that was a great little Beatles number. Not a little one, a huge mm. one, a yeah. fantastic one. Um, so, so Louis, we were, we've been talking about your latest novel that you're on book tour with, The Card Turner. Um, and we were, oh, you know, we were talking about it's aimed for 13 and up, right? Mm-hmm. What is, so is that, is that called the YA market? Is that what that is? Or, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, I guess as a writer, you're not going to be yeah, director of marketing and publicity. Right. But. And I don't, I don't really think in those terms when I write and, um, but yeah, that's, that's what they call it. Young adult or YA. But, oh. but I think, I think, I think young adults will, will really like the book. And I also think. Uh, their parents will like the book too. Right, right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, and so um, we were also mentioning that you began writing with this Wayside um, school series right. Um, right after college, basically, um, after Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And um, and then there was like the 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 people who published it, they, they went out of print because they went, uh, they unfortunately went under and um, not because of Wayside school series, but, um, it's probably the one thing that kept it afloat for a while. Right. Well, they didn't realize what they had. (laughs) Well, so, and, but then there was some time because then holes was this phenomena that we mentioned as well. Um, could you tell us a little bit, like, were, were you, how, when did you start making your living as a writer? What, what did you do? Because um, that's what I guess right now I'm thinking. This is your main focus. This is, this oh, absolutely. is right. But uh, before it wasn't like right. that. Right. Well, I'd I'd uh, I'd gone to law school. Actually, my first book was written while, uh, or actually it was accepted by a publisher during my first week of law school. So I always had this: Do I finish law school? Do I get a job? So I ended up p- finishing law school and passing the bar, but I never got a law job. Instead, I would occasionally get part-time work through friends as I focused on writing. Um, yeah, so after Wayside, Sideways Stories from Wayside School, I did a couple of other books that didn't do too well. And then I wrote a book called There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom, which was a, a huge success. And right around the time that came out was when I finally got Sideways Stories from Wayside School back in print. And so it was around then, it was like 19... 19- 86, 87, 88, when I realized I could uh, make a living as a writer. So had that been about then 10 years, roughly, of kind of keeping the faith and working working at it, but without maybe necessarily having right. that affirmation? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The only affirmation I, I got was the, the fan letters I would get. Certainly wasn't the, the money I was getting. But but I guess that that's part of the writing, really, or may, the main part is the communicating part of it, isn't it? Like that oh, connecting yeah. with people. Yeah, and that people people feel enough, you know, feel read the book and feel compelled to write to me is really wonderful. What, and when did you then? When in this process did you decide to get an agent? Was did people come to you, or because because it feels like writing is you know the nature of writing solitary. You're working. You're in your imaginative world. You're right. making, and then you're redrafting, and then suddenly the idea is for other people to read it. And so um, then you did that part too with the writers market, as you mentioned. But right. how did this other well, then, part come uh, in? Well, with there's a boy in the girl's bathroom. When I finished that, I thought, boy, this is my best book, and then I couldn't get it published. And um, that's Just, you were sending it out, but you were getting like the rejections back. Right, and, and this was, like, this, these were publishers that I already 
had worked with. Oh, so what? Yeah, that doesn't make sense, does it? Well, they they had complaints about the way it was written. I, I, I was from too many different points of view. So I tried rewriting it, and I got an agent, and um, and she sent it to one publish, well, several publishers, but one publisher was somewhat interested, but basically said the same thing that I'd been hearing all along, saying, um, "But it's just it's just from too many points of view." Which I thought I'd already fixed at this point, and so. Um, but Were they I worried that it was too complicated, or some? Or the, well, what was well, the... what I think what it is is if it's too from too many points of view, it doesn't draw the reader in. Instead, you kind of feel like it pushes the reader away, where they're, um, you know, it becomes a case study rather than a a book that draws you in. Ah, uh-huh. that makes sense. So yeah, it does, and 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 I and I eventually fixed it, um, but uh, so I finally found a. Found one publisher who, you know, said said there's lot so much they really love about it, but it's just, you know, they don't like the shifting of the point of view. And I, you know, basically wrote her a letter saying, well, if I rewrite it, will you willing to look at it again? And they said they would. So I rewrote it one, you know, one last time. It's probably the twelfth time I rewrote it. And and they published it, and it went on to to win practically every children's choice award in the country. And this is this there's is, a boy in the girls' bathroom, right? Okay, um, and then so then um, I forget how we got into this place, but yeah. So uh, <laughs> don't worry, we'll get out again. <laughs> so um, yeah, so at that point, with that and the and the publication, and finally again of Sideways Stories from Wayside School, I was able to make a living, and um, and then. So how are we getting out of this? Yeah, and so and so and then how long was it until holes came on the horizon? Because okay, so, I that's like a mile marker for me, I guess, like a big. Uh, okay, so I guess it was like 1987 when "There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom" came out, and I think I started writing holes in about 1993. Mm. And um, and you know, at this point, I th- I thought I'd reached, a, you know, I was a fairly successful writer, and I didn't realize just how much bigger it could. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know. So what was, yeah, what was that like then? Because that um, a film came out of that, so right. that's a whole different animal altogether. Then. Yeah, so that was that was great. I mean, I um, the, the director asked me to write the screenplay, which was a shock to me, and I wrote it, and, and we ended up using it, and I was on the set most of the time, and I just had. I just had a ball. What was it like taking it from the the its its novel framework and putting it into the screenplay? It was difficult. I mean, I, it was hard to think in terms of pictures rather than think in terms of words, which is what you have to do when you when you write a screenplay. It's it's a moving picture, you know, one picture after another, and you somehow have to think in that. Um, so more scene driven rather than the characters at that point, or it's just I I've, I guess I have trouble putting it into words just because I'm I'm not that good at it yet, but it's. Um, it's just not word driven. It's it's action driven or or scene driven, structure driven, but not word driven. Um, and then just the dialogue being the main skeletal. Yeah, but the dialogue. See, that's what people think that it's oh. you know. Well, yeah, you just need to write dialogue to write screen. <laughs> that's not it. The dialogue was easy. Is not easy, but I mean, a lot of it was taken right from the book. It's it's. Being able to think of it as as one picture after another, mm-hmm. which, which is was hardest. Um, but I but I'm I'm still friends with the director, um, and 
it was just a wonderful experience. And, and what's and what are you what are you doing? What are you working on now? Are you do you have a a, a current book underway? Well, I, I just finished doing a play based on Small Steps, which is the sequel to well, sort of a sequel to Holes. It's uh, the main character is Armpit, who is one of the side characters in Holes. Um, and so I just did this play, which just opened a few weeks ago in Portland, and, and I'm hoping it'll the word will spread and it'll get around the country. But was it in Portland, Oregon, or Portland, Maine? Oregon. Wow, great! And it, was, uh, it was. I really loved it. It was really fun to, instead of me locked up in my room, to be with working with actors and compose. It has music in it, so composers and the artistic director, and it's just. Uh, so what a collaboration then. Oh, were you, yeah. So were you there for every step of the way without Lewis, or, or a big chunk of it? It sounds yeah, like yeah. I was like I was there through several of the rehearsals, and I was there uh, working with the composer and writing the songs, which was really just the most fun for me. And then we went to the recording studio and recorded the music, and um, and then I was there, f- you know, for the week leading up to opening and then opening night. And then when I left, I left the day after opening. I just felt so sad. It was like, I'm never going to see these people again. I mean, I just became so close to them working on this this play together. And, you know, I felt like I was losing, you know, family or something when I, when I left and flew away. Oh, yeah. well... Well, it's great to have had that ex- that, yeah. that oh, feeling, yeah. right? And right. well, maybe oh, yeah. they, they yeah. can do something with the card turner. Maybe that will be next on the Portland stage. Yeah. Well, my 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 agent would love to, is always pushing me to write more plays. <laughs> well, that's well. Okay. Well, we all just have to come back, Lewis, and yeah. we'll talk about playwriting the next time. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the program today. Well, thanks. And, I've enjoyed it very much. Oh, me too. Me too. And um, so, Lewis Sacker. The Card Turner, a novel about a king, a queen, and a joker. You've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
busting hard. Yo, busting hard is easy, baby. What? Yo, baby, you really want it hard? Yeah, real hard.